We continue this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't get any easier. As a matter of fact, as we continue to journey through Christ's sermon, there's no slack in the line. There's challenge after challenge. And so several weeks ago, we started by camping out in the lush meadows of the Beatitudes. It's a passage that, uh, even if you're not a frequent Bible reader, that's loved for its beauty and its simplicity. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his followers, these are the kinds of attitudes that you should have, that you should mourn over your sin, that you should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And after he talks about these attitudes, he closes that section of the Sermon on the Mount by giving us the promise that when his people live with those kinds of attitudes, they will be salt and light to a dying and watching world. You think sometimes it's just your actions that people watch, but it's not true. People want to know why you do what you do. And so your motivations and your attitudes are huge. And then beginning last week, we move into a much more practical way where, where Jesus starts to give commands. And like the Ten Commandments, he, he began his commands last week by directing us very specifically to God. And he tells us, hey, take God's word seriously. Not one jot or tittle, not one stroke or letter will pass by, but they will all be fulfilled. He tells us that we should have a special love and respect for God's word, and he issues that as a command. So if we're going to have the right attitude, one of the actions that we are to demonstrate is a healthy uh, respect and desire for God's word. And he continues this week by calling our attention to people. And you'll remember that the Ten Commandments did the exact same thing. The first table of the law drew our attention to the Sabbath and idolatry and taking the Lord's name in vain. And the second table was predominantly concerned with murder and adultery and not coveting. You had attention drawn to God, attention drawn to people. And all throughout the commands that Jesus offers here, the seven commands that Jesus offers in Matthew 5 and 6, we'll see this interplay between reverence and respect for God, reverence for God and respect for people. How does that flesh out? It's been said that in many ways we prove our love for God by how we treat people. You want to know what someone's relationship with God is? Well, look at their friendships. It will tell you something about them. How do they treat people? There's a problem, however, when we talk about how we approach God's commands. You see, we all kind of like to grade ourselves on the curve. You ever done that? Have you ever tried to justify something that you knew was wrong? You lost your temper, and you know you lost it. But you're not about to lose the argument that you lost your temper. And so, you're saying, oh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't upset. No, no, no. I, yeah, I was just, I was abrupt. I was, not, I was not angry. We like to grade ourselves on the curve. And the way that I think Jesus talks about this is we'll begin in uh, verse 21. As he says this thing, that we like to renegotiate the terms so that they're more convenient and achievable for us. We like to renegotiate the terms so that they're more convenient and achievable for us. Listen to Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to the fires of hell. One of the very first things that we see here is that Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is dealing with the theme of murder. Not the kind of thing that you would think Jesus would need to talk about for his disciples. Hey, by the way, you've decided to, you know, take up your cross and follow me. Don't kill each other. Maybe he's been to a business meeting. Who knows? Maybe he's been to a corporate board meeting. He's seen something. And when he talks about murder, we need to be very clear here that he's not talking about capital punishment. He's not talking about soldiers who have gone to war. He's not talked about self-defense. He's talking about the intentional killing of another person for selfish and personal reasons. And there are a couple disturbing things that we see about what Jesus is talking about here. Number one, it's that he's not contradicting the law. He says something that I think is worth noting. He says, you have heard that it was said. And he likes to say, in other places, it is written. He's not contradicting the law by saying, you've heard this, but here's the, here's the truth. He, he's not comparing law to law. He's comparing tradition, things that have been passed down that are not accurate, with what is the true interpretation of Scripture. So by saying, you have heard, it's very significant that he's not saying it was written. Because we just saw uh, last week that Jesus is very concerned about the truthfulness of Scripture. The second thing that I think is very interesting here is he says, don't murder, in verse 21, and he says, whoever murders will be subject to judgment. He says, you've you got to watch out, because if you are... Um, If you kill someone, the police are going to come after you. You're going to end up in jail. Now, listen, for a believer in Christ, are we worried about the civil authorities? Maybe a little. I hear increasing talk about the loss of religious liberty, the loss of free speech. But for the most part, we don't have to worry about the law, do we? No, because we we obey the law. It's interesting here that there is no concept of being afraid of God if you kill someone. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? God marked him. He said, you've done this because you've killed someone made in my image. And so you see two things here very quickly about this renegotiating and making things more convenient and achievable. They're not really following the scripture. They're following a tradition. And they're not really scared about God's judgment. They're worried more about the human court. They're so jaundiced that they actually kind of intimate that their biggest threat was the human court. And the problem is one here that we've talked about before, that they have elevated the letter of the law over the spirit. And see, that's great, because that's a really effective strategy for making yourself look good. Because you can say, I've kept the law, I'm no murderer. Not even close. I'm, I'm a good religious follower of God's law. And the issue here is that they had a very mistaken approach to the law. A Jew thought to kind of make it in God's eyes, they had to dot all the I's and cross all the T's just right. They had to pass the test. They had to receive a minimum score if they wanted to pass the threshold. 
And the problem is this, is that the law is really not good as an entrance exam, but it is good as an examination tool. And that's what Jesus seeks to do here. He seeks to correct their fundamental error that they'd missed the entire intention of the law, which was to show them how impossible it is to live for God with human strength alone. He says, listen, it's not so much just the outward physical action of murdering someone. In verse 22, he says, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. The law is not an entrance exam, but it can be a helpful examination tool. If there's something that I could really wish for God's people, it would be an approach to Scripture interpreted rightly that would push them to Christ in His righteousness instead of away from Christ and towards self-righteousness. See, there's something inherent, and I don't know what it is, that makes religious people very self-righteous. And the problem is there's only one kind of righteousness you can hold on to at a time, and it requires a two-handed grip. You're either holding on to your moral goodness and righteousness, or you're holding on to the cross of Christ. And for a person who holds on to the cross, there is no way for you to maintain your dignity and your self-righteousness. Because the chief and fundamental way to get Christ's righteousness is to confess and admit that you have none in and of yourself. And there are so many ways that we use the Bible as a weapon, not against the satanic forces of our opposition, but against each other. Oh yeah, well, you know, you, you believe this, and so you know, you're, not, you're not part of my group anymore. You, you have this interpretation. You believe this about eschatology. You, um, we have to get rid of our own righteousness and cling to Christ. One of the ways I think that this is um, explained a little bit better is in our second point. And it's coming to the understanding that when Jesus came, he died so that we might be died in him. A little play on words there. But Jesus died, D-I-E-D, so that we might be died, D-Y-E-D. And Jesus here explodes this entire myth of self-righteousness by providing a true and accurate interpretation of Scripture. Now, we know that Jesus is not uh, against Scripture because last week we saw that the letters are important to Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's not just the littlest letters, but he says even the smallest strokes. So the words of Scripture are not unimportant. But the spirit of what is communicated is extremely important too. So don't don't divorce the letter of the law from the spirit of the law. Find a way for both of those to be friends because there's a way to do it. And Jesus says that. Perhaps another way to say this point that we're trying to make is that Jesus doesn't want Christians that have a thin lacquer of Christianity covering them. He wants them to be entirely saturated. The problem with the church today is that we we seem to have forgotten the message that being a Christian should affect every fiber of our being. Not just what we do between 10 and 12 on Sunday morning. Being a Christian should affect everything. Our motivations, our attitudes, our actions. Jesus has to say, hey, wait, 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 wait a second. Just because you have not murdered someone does not mean that you are now righteous. Like like murdering is the only thing to keep you out of the righteousness camp. 
You could be coveting. You could be greedy. You could be immoral. But I'm not a murderer, so I'm an upright, outstanding citizen. Now, as a matter of fact, Jesus does something that's very offensive to self-righteous people. He says murder, doesn't, murder originates in the heart, not in the hands. Here's the thing that's really strange. You may have never, ever been in a fist fight in your entire life, and you can have a more murderous spirit than a convicted serial killer. Do you believe that? You see, some people aren't bold enough to ever pick up a gun or a knife. But boy, they will kill you with their tongue. And one of the things that I think is important here is we are not, we are not saying that gossiping, is gossiping a sin? Do, do we know? We didn't sound real sure. I think one person knows that gossip, is gossiping a sin? Yes. Um, is stabbing a sin? Yes. Are they equivalent? No, I'm not saying, hey, if you've gossiped, you know, you're, 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 you might as well just go ahead and stab them. Uh, no, that's, that's not what the Bible says. If you're gossiping and you keep that going, worse things will come. Stop it. Don't do the stabbing. Don't do the gossiping part. So they're, they're both dangerous because they both have the same intention to hurt people. When you use your words in an ungodly way because you're angry, your intention is to, to hurt somebody. We don't think about that because there's no, there's no cut, there's no bruise, there's no medical bill, there's no insurance claim. But what we do with our language, as Jesus is about to say, is as murderous as actually picking up an implement of warfare. And yet... In church, oh, no, we don't, we don't murder, but we murmur. We talk about people, and we find like, all kinds of good ways to do it. It's a prayer request. Oh, did, did, you, did, you hear about, did you hear about her? Yeah, you won't believe where I saw her Friday night. Oh, well, I wasn't there. I was, I was going to Target, you know, but I saw her. She had a little brown bag, you know, and, I, you know, they do plastic bags at places I shop, you know. I don't know what could be in that brown bag. Or um, in the South, I think it's bless your heart, you know. Oh, bless your heart, which means you big fat idiot, you know. I can't believe, oh, bless your heart, you know. So we have, like, kind of kind code language that we use to kind of insult people sometimes. You know, oh, you know, we need to, we need to pray for him. Oh, really? About what? Well, let me tell you all the juicy details. Wow. And so Jesus says, guys, listen, if you really want to understand righteousness, it is, and I, I can't believe he even goes to this point, he says, it's not killing people that I'm concerned about. You know, it's interesting, 15,000 murders a year in the United States. It's higher or lower than you would have thought. It's been higher, 25,000 two years ago. You add uh, suicides to the mix, that's another 30,000 a year. Uh, Surprised that suicides doubled the average of murders. You add abortion to the mix, that's another million a year. There's a lot of angry people out there. Angry about what's happened to them, and they're trying to do something about it. And so Jesus says, it's not just murder, 
It's what's going on in your heart that even leads to that. And so Jesus gives us here a play-by-play progression of how anger grows in our life. And, and the sequence is not like what happens to Dr. Bruce Banner every time. You know, it's not the Incredible Hulk. It's not like, angry, rip clothes off, turn green. Sometimes it's a really slow burn. And if you're an introvert as opposed to an extrovert, watch out, you might be even more dangerous. Because introverts know how to hold it in longer and more quiet without anybody knowing about it. But they hate you. So what's he say? He says, we start by, uh, verse 22, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We begin by feeling anger. We feel it. Now notice a couple of things uh, that are said about this anger. anger. Uh, The word for anger, there's two words that Jesus could have used. There's thumos anger and there's orge anger. Thumos anger uh, would be dry grass anger. Lights quick, goes away fast. Some of you are dry grass angry people. Um, It's here quick and it burns intense, but it burns out really quick. Now, orge, I'll let you figure out what word that sounds like, Um, but it is a very intense, a very sustained, a very nurtured anger that is the coals are poked and Fuel is put on it, and it's not allowed to die. That's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. When you're angry, when you're sustaining and nurturing and cuddling your anger to keep it around longer, that's not good. And the truth is, when we think about anger, we we get angry about all kinds of things. We get angry because um, somebody squeezed the toothpaste tube in the wrong place, right in the middle. And listen, everyone knows the Bible says you're supposed to squeeze it from the end all the way up, okay? Or your kids put the toilet paper roll on the wrong way. Instead of coming over the top, oh my goodness, terrible, terrible. Or listen, there are some people get really upset at the driving habits of the person in front of them. You can tell because they know sign language all of a sudden. I mean, they, you know? I like the way Martin Luther said, said this. He said, you know, you really can't keep birds from flying over your hair, but you can keep them from building a nest in your head. You, may not, you might not be able to, like, stop every instance of anger, but you can get over it quick. You can find a way to say, wow, where did that come from? God, help me. And so he, he talks about this. He says, we've all felt anger. It's just that some of us are too well-trained to actually let on that we're angry. You know, husbands, have you ever asked this fateful question to your wife? What's wrong? Nothing. It's kind of sounding that little princess voice. You know, oh, you're in trouble. Nothing. I like the way Charles Darrow said it. Charles Darrow, the famous attorney. (laughs) He says, all men have in themselves an emotion to kill. He says, you know what, you just got to, you find what that emotion is, you find what that thing is that you can manipulate in their life, and you get it to a degree, and you can make anybody a killer. Mess with, their, mess with their family. Mess with their money. Mess with their property. He says, all men have an emotion to kill. When they strongly dislike someone, they sometimes involuntarily wish that they were dead. He says, I have never killed anyone, but I have read some obituary notices with great satisfaction. 
What's he saying? Yeah, I wish they were dead. I just never said it until they were gone. And then when I saw it in the printer, you know what? All right, that's an extra venti latte today. I'm going to treat myself. Man, he's gone. What a great thing. And here's what Jesus says that is really disturbing. By human nature, every single one of us in this room, whether you admit it or not, has this cesspool, this venom in your heart. And for some of us, just based upon our personality, it is, in a, it is filled to the brim in a, a fine crystal cup that is just waiting for some kind of agitation to bring it out. And when it does, it overflows. It can only be held back so long, but when it, when it does, it overflows into careless, cutting, and sometimes even poisonous words. Because we don't stay at the feeling anger stage. We don't just always feel it. It moves on to expressing anger. You see the uh, progression here. Jesus says, whoever's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. And then he goes on. Whoever says to his brother, you fool. Well, he'll be subject to the Sanhedrin. So the first guy's angry. He's uh, subject to the human courts. The second guy expresses it. And calls him a fool. Now he goes to kind of the Supreme Court. Now, what's wrong with um, Mr. T calling somebody a fool? Pitying the fool. Well, this is uh, uh, an expression of exasperation. Have you, ever, have you ever been exasperated? I mean, really wore out. Rough week at work. Relationship stuff is difficult. Uh, maybe finances are tight. And you're exasperated. And the cat comes across your path you kick the cat or sometimes the cat's your kid or your spouse or your best friend and you say something when you're exasperated that you would never say it any other time and then you go wow the point here is it's a word of exasperation and it's a phrase by calling someone a, a fool or an idiot that questions their competency can you believe he would do that A.K.A. any smart person would never have done anything like that, like me. I'm, I'm smart. I would never do that. Well, why do you do the stupid things that you do? Do you all of a sudden, it's so easy to see other people as idiots, as fools. You go, wow, that's a really dumb decision. And the thing is, when we make dumb decisions, we get free pass. Because we're not objective with ourselves. And it continues to go on. Because it moves from feeling to expressing to an anger that is judgmental in its tone. He continues on. He says, whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Listen, these are English translations of Hebrew words that aren't used anymore. So if I said, raka, you, you have no idea what that means. Fool and idiot are the best that we can do in the English language. But in the Hebrew, this word for moron is a word that doesn't just question their competency, it questions their morality. This is the guy who's not just lazy, uh, he, or not just dumb, incompetent. He's dumb and lazy. Now you're questioning what his uh, ethics are like. Oh, well, you know, you know why he does that. Uh, like, you know perfectly what's going on in the life of another individual. It's interesting as the 
Anger increases, so do the punishments. From the person who feels anger going to the court, for the person who begins to, get, uh, to express anger going to the Sanhedrin, to the person who is judgmental of a person's character, it says they'll be subject to the fires of hell. And so a very practical question for you this morning. When it comes to anger, are you a spewer or are you a stewer? How do you handle it? Because as Charles Darrow says, and the Bible absolutely confirms, we all have to deal with anger. If you're a spewer, if you're a volcano, listen to these Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool's anger is known at once. Proverbs 18, 7. A fool's mouth is his ruin. And his lips are the snare of his soul. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool always loses his temper. If you're a steward, it doesn't get any better. In uh, Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms 32, 3. David says this. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. You know, if you keep your sin unconfessed, it can literally eat you alive. The point is, neither one of these, you know, well, you go, hey, I'm a, I'm a stewer. I don't, I don't get mad in public. I'm, I'm, I'm better than the spewer. We have this tendency, again, to just self-justify. The Bible would say neither one of these are good. Neither one of them are good. You've all had that tendency where <clears throat> it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You are ticked off, and you express it, and you are trying to grab the words as they are going into someone's ear. It's better off just to never say them. Just keep quiet. And not harbor them inside. So what's the solution? Well, thankfully, thankfully, Jesus doesn't give us a shallow uh, therapeutic technique for dealing with anger management. Because it don't work. We don't need moralistic therapy. We'll do this. Well, if I could do it, don't you think I would have done it already? As if it's in my power to do anything to change my character. Instead, Jesus directs us to building a gentle and reconciling spirit. Now, I don't know of a woman in this room that doesn't have a gentle spirit. Guys, I think, uh, I think the challenge for women maybe is more the reconciling spirit. But guys, we struggle with a gentle spirit, don't we? having a gentle spirit. And so he continues on in verse 23 and 24, and he gives us a couple illustrations. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift on the altar, it's a picture of the temple, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He begins with this picture of the temple. And he deals with something that was an actual, legitimate conundrum for a Jew. What takes precedence? Religious ritual or personal relationship? And so their argument, and this makes some sense, is God is greater than any human, so fulfill your obligation to God first and then deal with personal issues. That was the choice that the Jews had made. And Jesus is basically... God doesn't want to talk to anyone who's not willing to make things right with a brother. Did you get that? 
The Jews said, well, you know, we want to honor God first, and so let's, let's finish our religious ritual, and then we can fix our personal relationships. And God goes, no, 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 no. Don't think you can come and talk to me if you're not willing to make things right with your brother. So notice a couple things here. It's a brother, not a sibling, but a person of similar faith. A person against whom anger really is kind of strange. Okay, you guys have the same spiritual father. You've had the same spiritual birth. You have the same spirit indwelling you, and you're angry with the person that you're going to share eternity with. That doesn't mean you can't have disagreements, but anger with another Christian? I'm willing to chalk up misunderstandings, um, poor communicate, but anger? And it makes it very clear. Jesus shows us that this kind of spirit is necessary because anger will affect your relationship to God. This is necessary. Now, we see this necessity through this passage very clearly. He says, if you happen to be in worship and you're getting ready to do worship things, and there you remember that somebody has something against you, leave. He doesn't say, wait. He doesn't say, you know, um, on the third verse of the invitation hymn, walk out the door. He says, leave, stop. What's he say then? He says, proto, first. First what? First priority, make things right. Then, come on back to church and pick up where you left off. And see, the thing that's interesting is when we talk about worship, we think that worship is improved by the externals. If we just had a better sound system, if we had better preaching, if we had better music, if we had better architecture, man, our worship would be so much better. And Jesus says, you want to improve your worship, then work on your relationships. You want to make worship better? Well, understand that ritual doesn't mean anything if the relationships are not glorifying to God. I think, I think, based upon this passage, Jesus would say, if he was here, if you are unreconciled with brothers and sisters in Christ, it's better for you to stay away from church until you fix it. Because God's going to say, unless you're willing to do that, you don't get this. And see, that is so easy for us to just say, well, you know, it's water under the bridge. We're not going to deal with that. And he's going, don't, don't think that what happens over there doesn't have an impact here. And so he says, hey, you've got, you've got a free pass. You've got an incomplete for the course, and you're not allowed to re-enroll until you get that fixed. Because this is a sham unless it works its way out in flesh and blood relationships. He says, it's necessary. Stop what you're doing. First go and be reconciled. And then come back and your worship will be sweeter because your burden is gone. The relationship is fixed. He also says that this kind of spirit is urgent because unresolved anger grows in its consequences. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last cent. That's a different image. We move from uh, the image of a temple with a brother to a courtroom with an adversary. And the point is that you're basically about to get your pants suit off. And both of these illustrations do something interesting. In, in Jesus' teaching on anger, 
when he talks about the guy in the temple and the guy in the courtroom, it doesn't say anything about your anger. Did you notice that? What he's talking about is something you did that's made somebody else angry. So Jesus' whole thing in talking about anger, when he gets down to this whole idea of building a gentle and reconciling spirit, he doesn't say anything about the personal anger that we're feeling, but he, he talks about the effect that we're having on other people. So here's a couple practical questions. What is the issue that people have against you? Well, in both cases, it's translated as something. Something. What's it take for somebody to be upset at you? Has anyone ever had someone upset at them? And the tru- truth is, when all the facts came out, it was something teeny-weeny, something relatively insignificant, but kind of like a small piece of food that kind of goes down the wrong pipe. <coughs> it's not going to kill you, but it's going to irritate you. What is the thing? It could be anything. How big does it need to be before you stop worshiping to go? You know, well, you know, hey, I just took his parking space. You know, he can get, o- he can get over that. How big does it need to be before you go and make it right? Does it need to be righteous anger? Well, that's about a one in a million chance when you're talking about a human and his feelings. Uh, there's one person who had, uh, one human who had righteous anger. And we ended up killing him and hanging him on a cross. I don't know that my anger's ever been righteous. The point is this. Jesus is telling us anger is a big deal. And in our own human experience, we are really aware of when people offend us. We're not so good at knowing when we offend other people, present company included. I'm much more aware of how I feel about a situation than how you feel about a situation. We're generally unaware of how we upset others. And the point is this. If anger is indeed a serious issue for our own personal walk with God, we should be just as concerned when we cause anger in others as much as we are about the anger that wells up in us. So ask the question. When Jesus gives the commands, love God's word, and then the very first one directed to people is an intensely relational one. Don't you be angry at other people, and don't you make other people angry. Pursue peace. And, and, and by his illustrations, he's not just saying, just pursue peace with other people that worship in your building. Build peace with your adversaries, people that are not brothers. It's been said that if the church would live out what they truly believe, our testimonies would be the greatest evangelism tool the world has yet to see. The thing that's so difficult is this kind of stuff that Jesus talks about, it's not a three-step program. It's not a church-wide emphasis. It's not a lacquer that you paint on to keep the exterior safe. It is a process of dipping yourself in the dye and staying there until you're saturated. So if you're like me, there are some days you think you're saturated pretty well, and then there's other days where you realize you need to kind of get back in the tank. 
The Bible doesn't say, well, listen, all you angry folks, there's no hope for you. Tried, gave you the warning. He says, listen, I didn't just come to point the way. I came to walk with you along the way. And I came to give you my spirit to empower you to live the way. And so today, friends, if your discipleship is deficient, if you are angry or you have made others angry, the Bible would say today, will you love Jesus more than your self-righteousness? And will you repent and make things right? I pray that you will. Join me in prayer, please. God, the calling that you place upon our life is high. The um, gracious demands that you call us to live what you proclaimed, God, is well beyond our power. But we know, as your word says, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So God, we pray that by your spirit, for our good and for your glory, that you will build within our hearts, within our congregation, a gentle and reconciling spirit that takes the sin of anger seriously. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.